0: We prepare our children how to handle conflict out in the world. Watch for bullies, treat others with kindness, build an emotional vocabulary. But what about when the primary source of conflict is at home between your children? Tune in today as we tackle the difficult task of addressing sibling conflict and the tools that can bring us to resolution. Welcome to WonderCast, a community collaborative podcast supporting families navigating the complexities of chronic illness. In this episode, I am joined by our incredible Houston team, Whitney Dubison and Danielle Coleman, Child Life Specialists at our Wonders and Worries Houston office. Solutions to sibling conflict might just be a little less daunting than you think. Listen in and let's see. This is Whitney and Danielle.
1: Well, Julie, thank you very much for having me back on. It was such a joy last time we talked. I am Danielle Coleman. I am the Child Life Specialist in the Houston office. I have been a Child Life Specialist now for over 10 years, which I cannot believe that every time that comes out of my mouth. (laughs) And I am a mom of two. I have right now, they are twins, both four. My oldest is eight months older. She is adopted, and my youngest is biological.
2: Hi, thanks so much for having me, Julie. I have been a child life specialist for 14 years, which is wild. I'm married to my college sweetheart, and we have two kids who challenge me and humble me daily. So I have a lot of personal input into this topic for sure.
0: We are coming off of the summer. I think all of us as moms are excited to see our kids return to some of that routine of school and of preschool and just kind of getting back some of those habit-forming behaviors that we all love and thrive under. But also, changes in our home life, changes in maybe if you are listening and you have a new diagnosis or an ongoing treatment plan, you've noticed changes in your own family unit with that stress. And sometimes that comes out maybe not towards mom and dad, but maybe just towards siblings. So today I am joined by Danielle and Whitney, why we tackle this difficult topic of sibling conflict, talk through some tools for resolution. And just take a look at validation and de-escalation.
1: The first week of school, I've had to remind myself and other families, like, this is like a grace and forgiveness week, right? With the change in routine and the change in roles, it comes with a lot of frustration and tiredness and anxiety, right? And so that in itself causes disagreements in the house let alone not having a parent that has an illness right so with the change in routine comes with bed, new bedtime routines it comes getting up and morning routines and so all of those things are a normal stressor but a good stressor at the same time right and all all the kids that have to endure that. And then there's roles and responsibilities that are new for them at school, which also add to that sense of stress, social etiquettes, learning what friendships looks like, what sharing looks like, what did all those different things look like during this school day. But then you add an ill parent to the scenario, right? And so then you add increased separation from that ill parent. And that can either be physical separation where the parent is at the hospital more often or just separation from them not being able to play because they're too tired. And so symbolics and separation in that regard, right? Financial changes. So is the child or children able to do after-school activities and sports? Or can, they, can that be part of their routine? Or has that also changed in their routine because they have an ill parent, right? So those are just kind of some of the stressors that are facing our children at this time as they kind of enter into that, that school year. Whitney, would you like to add anything to that? I found it
2: interesting in reading the book that we'll reference later, it's called Siblings Without Rivalry and the authors are actually the ones who wrote how to talk so kids will listen and listen so kids will talk. And they said as they wrote that book, the sibling chapter kept growing and growing and growing to the point where they had to just remove it and create a separate book. So this is clearly a widespread vast issue for families that think we're all in good company. So, it's just something that's a normal aspect of family
0: home life. We talk about this concept of the whole brain child and how we take that approach when we are working with conflict resolution between families. Danielle, do you want to kind of break down for our listeners when we're talking about the whole brain child what we actually are meaning? Yes.
1: So this is when I wish that podcast had had some sort of video, right? So Dan Siegel does an amazing job explaining what the child brain looks like by using a hand model. And so if you hold your hand up, like you're about to give a high five, it kind of helps explain what the, the child's brain looks like. So you put the thumb in the middle of the palm, and this is going to be the fight or flight. This is going to be your area where the childs are constantly scanning their environment to see where they stand. And then you lay your four fingers on top of that fight or flight area. And that is your higher level thinking, your frontal lobe of your brain, right? And so when these two are connected, the child is regulated. The child can survey its environment and react appropriately, right? However, when a child is under threat, a child's under stress, a child is hungry, tired, feeling lonely, or anxious that lid can be flipped. And then when I say that, the four fingers then disconnect from that fight or flight area. And that child is only thinking with that fight, flight response area of their brain. And so as parents, as, as caregivers, our job is to help re-regulate our children. And so how can we re-regulate our, our children? So what that looks like is a lot of validating. And so I always like to say, there's this, it's called the fast food rule, And so the fast food rule is when you go to check out, you know, you're driving in the fast food lane, you go to check out and they always relist the, the items for you, right? Same thing applies to parents. You want to restate what you see and what you hear. And if, frankly, if you feel like you're not getting to that child, match their affect. And so if they really are truly upset Really like pound your feet, pound your hands, and express that I see you're upset. I see you're mad. I see you're having a really hard time. And then once they look regulated, once they look calm, that's when we can move forward with how we can solve the problem, how we can compromise, how we can resolve what's happening.
0: I think one of the things that we do well as child life specials that we are trained to do is to stop and try to see something from a child's vantage point and the way that it encompasses all of their senses. And kind of talking about what leads to our conflict and what our stressors are. If you really are having a hard time identifying it, we've done everything right. We've done their normal breakfast routine. We've prepared them well for what's happening in their home life. They're not tired. Then maybe you take a minute and just really put yourself in their shoes, get down at their level, look around and say, okay, what am I noticing? How heavy is that my child's backpack compared to their body weight? What time is their lunch? What time is their snack? Are they having to stretch longer than they're used to from our summer? Compare it to their most immediate time frame, And I think you're going to start seeing it from those senses and, and input that your child is looking at.
1: Something that we're struggling with in our household right now is that we can't parent every child the same. And Julie, I'm sure you know that with having four of them that they all have to be parented very differently. And so knowing your child's love language and knowing how they like to receive love and give love can help you parent each child differently. I'll go over the five love languages, but then I'm going to circle back and kind of really target a couple of them which can cause conflict between siblings. And so the five love languages are words of affirmation, physical touch, receiving gifts, quality time, and acts of service. And so I'm gonna circle back to words of affirmation. So words of affirmation is when the child thrives on spoken or written language, right? So what that can look like is just looking at them and saying, I'm really proud of you, how you practiced really hard at baseball practice today or writing a sweet note in their lunchbox. And so they get that every day. To your point, Julie, right? Like with that new school routine, is their lunch being pushed back, right? Is lunch, that social etiquette and who I sit with and who I talk to could be a really challenging time. So a kid with words of affirmation, that can really go a long way in how they're coping and handling that day. So I wanna focus on this one a little bit more when it comes to siblings bickering and fighting, because when we do praise, that child, we want to make sure we're praising that child and not comparing the two children or three children. And so when we do compare, then we create this sense of roles, right? And so we don't want the children to fall into one role or another. So praise the child's actions and feelings and try to prevent any sort of comparing. I get another kind of um, tip or trick that I like to always tell my parents too, is this is a good time to talk about positive gossip. A lot of times we always say gossip is a bad thing, right? But there is such a thing as positive gossip. And you could be talking to your spouse, talking to the grandma and be like, Jonathan did such a great day today. He did X, Y, and Z. And he, could, Jonathan could just be in the room and overhear you talking about him, right? And that, that word of affirmation and not being said directly to him, but said to somebody else can be such a bolster in how they feel about themselves. And then I want to circle back to quality time. Quality time for these kiddos is just sharing time together. And it can be anything. It can be cooking together, watching a show together, arts and crafts, right? This is where I think it gets tricky too with siblings if one requires quality time and the other one doesn't. It can show a little bit of unfairness in how we're delegating our time out to our children it can cause again that sibling rivalry and that sibling fighting so those kiddos that do need that special time together we recommend here at wonders and worries special playtime. so once a week 30 minutes uninterrupted no technology no phones sitting down with that kiddo and just engaging in their engaging in play with them, right? No siblings allowed. Nobody, nobody else allowed at that time. Talking to your child that it's not going to be equal for both of you. You might both need different things at different times, and depending on the season of life, right? And then the other one I kind of want to mention too is acts of service. So acts of service is when the kiddo just loves being the helper, loves helping out that caregiver. And this one can go really far when you have an ill parent, right? This can be the kiddo that really wants to help manage medicine. This can be the kiddo that really wants to help rub mom's feet or sit next to them while they're watching a show. And again, that could also cause sibling rivalry because that one kiddo is showing his love in a different way than the other one. And so it can lead to parents comparing. And we want to prevent that sense of comparison between those different things and typecasting our kids in these certain roles, that one is the caretaker and one's not. One's going to be the responsible one and one's not. We don't want to typecast them because then they're going to play up to their roles. So I'll pause there.
0: What I love about the way that we approach our children with Wonders and Worry staff all being trained in trauma-informed care, it really has made a mindset shift and the support that we give our families. Now we know that so many kids that are responding a certain way, it's not about why they are acting this way. It's about what's happened to them that has caused them to to respond this way. I'm going to hand off to Whitney. She is our trauma-informed care guru. And let you explain a little bit about what that looks like and how that shows up in sibling conflict.
2: So I think this is a perfect kind of shift from the five love languages into sort of seeing children in as an expression of what's happened as opposed to making decisions about who they are based on their personality or the temperament that you see. And I found a quote in the book that basically was explaining that when we're looking at our kids, there's this magical shift that can happen if we see them not as who we think they are, or we tell ourselves these stories about the way that they were born and immediately started acting one way, but we instead are able to shift our focus into validating what we want to see from them. We don't want anyone to see us as somebody who's static and incapable of change and growth, and we don't want to do that to our children either. The quote is, let's not place our children in roles that will defeat them, So by kind of seeing the goal and acting in a way that we're trying to promote what we want out of them can shift not only the way they see themselves, but the way that we're postured to support them as well. And so one of the things that I think would be a helpful activity for families or even just a mental reframe, depending on the age of your children, is to consider this famous band-aid story. And so there's several different ways it's told, but in the case of perhaps children that are facing a serious illness in their family, I think it might be helpful to explain the concept of fair, not equal. And so let's imagine for a moment that you go and see a doctor and you're the very first patient and you happen to have a large scratch that needs stitches and a band-aid. So what would then be equal for that doctor for the rest of the day would be to offer stitches and a band-aid to every single patient that comes in after But would that be fair so with young children or with a family you can all sit around and have them imagine okay i want you to imagine the most creative reason you can why you would go to the doctor and then everyone shares and then everyone gets a band-aid and you all have to put it on the same spot and then you ask does everyone feel like that was equal and then you ask but did everyone feel like that was fair and then you're able to then you know, expound upon the reasons why there are seasons in life. And there are times when what is, you know, the thing to do does not always seem equal. And one of the the things that I always talk about, I think Wonders and Worries loves to seek open communication. And so I, one of the things that I learned early on is that if there is an elephant in the room, let's introduce it. So if you feel on some level, like your child is struggling with things not feeling equal or fair, then naming that for them and giving them an opportunity to to talk that out, I think is a very important aspect to moving towards serving their specific love language rather than seeing someone else's love language be validated and wondering why they're feeling left lacking. And so I think one of the things in my experience that works well is to, to model different ways to show love languages. So if my one child really needs notes and affirmations, I'm going to make sure that my other child is seeing me write those notes and I'm talking about him with that. So that it's leading him to water, he can choose if he wants to drink, right? It's different things like making sure if there's a special activity that you're helping your children see the value in watching each other rather than giving them a tablet and telling them to go play while the other one's playing a sport. So just offering organic, realistic ways to let them meet the needs of others allows them to feel like everyone can participate in meeting each other's needs.
0: I think that's super powerful. It's important to note that kids are not going to come by this just naturally. They're going to get it wrong. They're going to struggle. They're going to not be their best selves the first time around. Even in older children, I have a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old, and this is the first week of school. And my 15-year-old had early morning practice for football and went through the whole day at school, It's been 108 in Austin, and he didn't eat a big lunch because of a medication he takes. So by last period, he felt horrible. He had no glucose in his body. He was hot. And he actually left his class to go throw up and then went back to his last period class, which I wish he hadn't. But you know, and then he came home. And as he came out the door to school, his sister drives him home and she saw him and saw that he wasn't feeling well. For some people, their strength might be empathy, or that might be something that comes a little more naturally. For her, she she was in that full fight or flight and saw, you're sick, you're going to throw up in my car, it's hot, we're going to be stuck in this hot parking lot for a long time with you throwing up and all my friends seeing me. And she did not choose kindness in her response. In that moment, and called me and was yelling and yelled at her brother. Well, then her brother didn't want to get in the car and wanted to go lay in the locker room for me to come pick him up. And so it was a huge cluster. But once we got away from that, we were able to later on in the evening circle back and talk through how that made that one person feel. And he was able to explain how it hurt his feelings and it embarrassed him and he felt rejected. And then his sister was able to explain how she was anxious and how she was uncomfortable and how she responded that way. And they were able to apologize. So I think it's okay to say, we have these tools for you. Trauma-informed care is huge. Love languages is huge, but it's okay if you don't get it right the first time because there's always that space to go back. I think part of recognizing what is the most important thing for each of our individual kids is recognizing also when our individual kid is not capable of resolution in that moment. And that's hard. Like I have one that wants to talk about it right away and one that does much better always if we circle back once their emotions calm down. So it's just different kids. We recognize as clinicians and as moms listening that this is a give or take.
1: So to circle back to, to Dan Siegel's hand model, right? He often says to help children regulate is to name it to tame it, right? And so your example is a prime example of naming it to taming it. Like, I felt anxious. I felt embarrassed, right? I'm naming these feelings. And so that you can understand how I feel in that moment. Just, again, circle back to what Whitney was saying of helping children in that moment, figure out where the conflict arised and what where those feelings. And
2: I think it's an important kind of aspect of all this to consider our own
1: expectations
2: and our own beliefs about what sibling conflict means or will mean in the future or what it means about us as parents. And so we need to take a moment to regulate ourselves as well and to give permission that this argument that they had in the parking lot does not mean that they won't want to be friends when they're adults, Right to release these expectations that we've experienced in our own childhoods or our own perceptions about things. And so we need to regulate ourselves and name that as well to kind of root out some of these beliefs that we're holding that we're applying
0: to our children as well. And that's hard. That's to me very humbling to be like, this is not about me. This is about them. This is not about my illness. This is in this moment about them. And that's okay. And... I struggle with that and I don't have a chronic illness that I'm just battling and we recognize
1: that that's difficult to do. Not all arguments are going to be based off the illness. They're going to have arguments just because of school stressors and because of life. (laughs) Especially coming off summer.
2: So the main tool that I found it in both the siblings without rivalry book. And then there's another podcast episode where she basically it's a mom that says, I am not a clinician. This is just my own experience from my own therapy and the activity that she does in order to then there's a whole long list of different ways to reframe and to attack this. But her very first step is to have a family meeting, which can be triggering as well. So to consider all that that means with it and then to set intentions and expectations around this issue that everyone is aware of. I would say from a tick perspective, you want to prepare everyone, and Danielle will touch on this as well, where you make sure no one is hungry or already mad about something. If someone's suffering from anxiety, what can we do to have deep breathing or acknowledge feelings about that ahead of time. But without knowing what the common goal is, children are not jumping ahead to saying, oh, one day we'll be adults and we need to get along then, right? They're just in the moment reacting to what's happening. So if you can take a moment to then get everyone together, make sure everyone is regulated, and then have input onto what they think a family that is, caring for one another and what they can expect from each other would look like, can then lead to being able to support each other better. From that, this is called The Lazy Genius and it's episode 216, Navigating Siblings Who Fight. And so in her case, her family decided that connection and feeling emotionally safe are the priorities when it comes to handling sibling rivalry and conflict. And so she talks about this mental reframe of not being a referee, Because when you're a referee, most of them can't even tell you who won the game because they're so focused on the rules. They miss the plot. They miss all of the nuance. It's just about rules. If you're a coach, your job is to be a connected, inspired leader who's seeing the bigger picture rather than the rules. And so if you, as your coach, have your rule book and your playbook in mind that's assigned before everyone's lids are blown then you can then guide the narrative into a way that is more helpful and the other one quick little shift is to instead of jumping to being a referee is to ask the simple question when you hear your children starting to escalate do you need my help or how can i help because it takes people's guard down a little bit by giving them a little bit of power in order to say, here's what I need, or here's what I want. So that posture change um, as parents can really help children not only normalize that communication breaks down and fights happen, but it normalizes
1: accepting help, which I think is something that most people struggle with. But also how powerful to be like, I'm giving you guys choices to how to solve this, right? I'm gonna treat you as an equal, both as siblings, but as a family member, we are a team. So how can over here, how can I help you? Or what was the other one, Whitney? Do you need my help?
0: Yeah, powerful. And also in the way that you say that, I know we have a two-story home. And if I have kids that are fighting upstairs and I am downstairs, I'm yelling, what's going on, or guys quit fighting, or even how best case scenario, how can I help? If I'm screaming that from the bottom stairs, that's automatically sending them into this state of mom's upset, or I'm going to get in trouble. So if you are physically able, go put yourself in their space in a quiet way, I feel like is the least intrusive way to help reach resolution, which is important. Sometimes I'm in a place where I can't step away. And so we are very fortunate that we have an Alexa and I have an Alexa in their room and I can drop into their room and I use that as a tool. I use that as a tool specifically in the mornings. We have a lot of May children that do not like to wake up for school and we'll go wake them up They'll say they're getting up and then they never come downstairs. <laughs> and so instead of stopping what I'm doing, because it is very structured and limited in our time to get lunches going and breakfast going and folder signed. And it's more like using the tools I have, which in our case is a device where I can say drop into this person's room. And in a calm voice, I can say, are you out of bed yet? Have you gotten dressed yet? And it's not me screaming at them because it's at regular audio level in their room, but I'm not having to go physically upstairs and be right in their space. So that's something that we have found that works for us. Obviously, it comes with tools and equipment and expenses. And so that may not work for everyone, but finding ways to put yourself in your child's space in a way that's not threatening, I think makes a huge difference.
2: Well, and Julie, another thing about that is that you're not using the siblings in roles to say, you're down here, you're ready go get your sibling, right, you're still using structure that you're in charge of doing that for them. So it decreases opportunities for rivalry and fighting. One of the things that helped me too, is they outline four different levels of fighting. And that's something that I feel like I need structure and boundaries around, right? So if I'm going to offer for them to figure it out themselves, it needs to be within a certain level. Level one is just normal bickering, and the advice there is basically dissociation, like begin planning your next vacation mentally, let them handle it. When it pre- progresses to level two, it's where you start to offer that question, right? So everybody's still at a point where that question might actually be received without feeling like everyone's tone and, and lids are blown, right? That's an important parenting part of learning when to nip it in the bud and when it's passed the point of some of these tools being feasible. So then, level three is when things become possibly dangerous, right? So you see that, okay, things are starting to be thrown, or, you know, we're in a situation that's not able to just be, they're not going to be able to handle this on their own. And then, level four is where it's definitely dangerous. And so that is where you throw that question out the window and you separate them. And like you mentioned earlier, Julie, that we're going to circle back when we all can talk normally. But right now, the most important thing is to clearly state this is no longer safe and you need to separate. I think for me who can tend to go straight to that authoritarian mode in order for me to see that there are levels where that's not necessary helps me to know, okay, but I still do have that as you know, kind of like a safety net. If of all these things that I'm trying aren't working. Something
1: else that was stated in the book about level one too, Whitney, that I really enjoyed because we, like you guys have both mentioned, we have to regulate ourselves to help regulate our children. And so at that level one, right, they actually say like, go to your happy place, pretend you're on vacation so that you yourself don't get deregulated listening to the disagreement. Because at the end of the day, something I really wanted to comment on is that disagreements in a household or between friends is healthy and normal and okay. We want to rupture so that we can repair. And so when we have disagreements, it increases problem solving with our kids. It lo- teaches them how to compromise. It increases communication and helps them identify and manage their feelings. And so I don't want people to walk away from this podcast thinking, oh, gosh, my kids are always arguing, right? It's okay that they argue. It's normal. And just because there's an ill parent in the house, feelings do get heightened. Anxiety does get heightened. And arguments might happen more often, but that's okay. And I think I just want our parents to know that it's okay.
0: What Winnie was saying with the trauma-informed care, what we experienced in our own childhood also does come out in the way that we parent our children. And I think that that is important to recognize specifically if you are maybe an ill person or supporting someone who's ill in your family, you might have other people in the home helping with you. You might have other generations helping with you. And it's very different in the relationship that happens between maybe a grandparent and their grandchild versus the way a grandparent might talk to you or an in-law, or something else. So recognize those stressors, too, and know that, again, it's not going to be perfect. And it might take some circling back as the adults, too, to say, hey, this really made me feel overrun. This made me feel like you weren't listening. It's okay to take those same skills that we are trying to impart on your children, and to use it in your own adult relationships with the people that are in your caretaking team.
1: So back to Dan Siegel's hand-modeled theory of when our child is deregulated and regulated. And so kind of to your point earlier too, Julie when sometimes when we our routine is going perfectly right everything seems to be moving smoothly but then all of a sudden we do have an outburst all of a sudden we do have really big feelings in the house and you're like where did this come from something that I like to remind my parents of is halt and what does halt mean halt means if a child is hungry anxious lonely or tired then this is not the time to have difficult conversations. this is this is a child that is deregulated and needs their basic needs met. And it, a lot of times it often always goes back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs not to introduce a theorist, but with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it just states that like we can't we can't thrive in life unless we meet those basic needs of food and shelter and love, right. And so a lot of times like, you to again whitney's point i myself want to go to the authoritarian parenting instantly right and it can be from my own childhood it can be from my own baggage but i need to tell myself no this is a time for snack this is a time for snuggles this is a time for these different things and then i will circle back to the behavior that was unacceptable and we will talk about it i think a lot of times we have to remind our parents too it's a compliment to them right like the fact that our kids feel safe enough to be anxious lonely and tired around us and and let us be the punching bag as hard as it is to be the punching bag it's a compliment to us that they feel that attachment towards us but to to speak of the ill parent though too it's you're more vulnerable to halt yourself right? And so sometimes we want to regulate us as parents and to make sure that we can meet our children's needs. Sometimes doing a self-assessment of HALT on ourselves. Am I hungry? Am I lonely? Am I anxious? Am I tired right now because of my treatment? Is this a time that I can tap out? This is a time that I'm not, I just cannot be your punching bag right now. And that is okay too, because you need to take care of yourself. It's
2: such an opportunity for repair to use those words clearly and to speak your elephant in the room. I haven't taken care of my body today. I need to get some water and I need a snack and then I can meet you where you are. So modeling by clearly communicating openly our own vulnerabilities.
0: And I do feel like the schools today do a very good job of teaching children at a young age, that emotional intelligence, that language of I need, I see, I feel, and that helps so much when you can tap into that because they are already familiar, especially if they're school-age children. They're, They're familiar from their everyday school life. So if you tell them, hey, we need to take a minute and talk about, I see that your voice is very loud, and that tells me you are wanting to share your feelings. And just breaking down the different things that you see and feel and know about them, I think that makes a huge difference.
1: So recently, I had a new family where the dad's cancer is terminal, and they are aware that it is terminal, but the children are not aware that it is terminal. And because dad is worried about the future, and unfortunately the future without him, the whole family has let all boundaries go. Uh, so there's no bedtime routine. There's no morning routine. And on in addition to the lack of routine, there is a bunch of excitement in the house. There is, we're going to Disney this weekend. We're going to the splash pad the, the next day and we're constantly moving and going. And so we change routine from summer, go, 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 to now school and go, go, go. And they're noticing more outbursts at home, more sibling conflicts at home and not understanding the why and so having to sit down with them and tell them that children thrive within boundaries frankly everybody thrives within boundaries and routines then when we don't have those boundaries and we don't have those routines and we go 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 then we're creating this sense of fight or flight within the household right of like what's next what's going on what's what's happening and it can be a good stress, right? Like, I'm excited to go to Disney, but I'm also anxious about going to Disney. And because I'm anxious, I'm acting in this way. And because I'm acting this way, it's causing sibling rivalry and meltdowns in the house. And so how can we find the balance of creating positive memories within boundaries, within routines, and within structure? And one of the kiddos' love language was quality time. And so introducing the special playtime, just 30 minutes a week, made a huge difference for her. She didn't need the gift giving love language of going to Disney. She needed the love language of quality time and that made a huge difference and created positive memories with the ill parent.
2: So I think in thinking through, we're all going forth to try and meet our children's needs in a fair way and not an equal way. And so I'll leave you with this quote to think about. It says, to be loved equally is somehow to be loved less. To be loved uniquely for one's own special self is to be loved as much as we need to be loved. So just to remind yourself that equal is not the goal, but fair and unique
0: is. I don't think that there is anything more powerful than feeling seen by the people that you love. And by loving someone uniquely, those children are able to feel seen and valued. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast today. Please subscribe and continue to check back as our content is ever evolving. For questions or specific content related requests, please send an email to podcast at wondersandworries.org.